Hello, welcome to On Connection. I am your host, Emma Rose Connolly, and if you are new here, we're very happy to have you. This is a podcast where we talk about topics and challenges pertaining to the working world, particularly leadership and anything involving collaboration and connection, which we would argue is most of work. And we look at those challenges and questions through a multi-generational lens. Today, we're talking about sponsoring responsible autonomy. That's some words, so I shall give a bit more context about what we mean by them and why this topic feels really relevant right now. About a year ago, Mickey wrote a blog you'll hear us reference in this episode that we titled Autonomy Ain't Anarchy. He wanted to write something on the topic because there's a big difference between being autonomous and living in anarchy because one occurs in in connection and one is all about disconnection. As part of our leadership philosophy, we say that there are three components of creating vital communities of achievement, whether that be a team, organization, or any group of people out to do something together. Those elements are community, which is all about a sense of belonging and commitment to a shared purpose, contribution, meaning the opportunity to make a meaningful difference, and choice, choosing to commit yourself rather than just submitting or being compliant to a demand. You can go read the blog. We'll link it in the show notes. But to give you a quick summary, he says that choice on its own isn't evidence of autonomy. Rather, autonomy occurs at the intersection of these three things. He says autonomy is naturally granted to people who are respected for choosing to make contributions that benefit the community. That self-supervising opportunity to make decisions is based in the trust of that community, not based in title or tenure. Most essentially, he says, the autonomy zone is a place where belonging and freedom coincide. Another way this gets talked about is leaders who want people to take more ownership. I looked up a bunch of recent articles about ownership and leadership and ownership mindset and all that jazz. And here are a few of the definitions that came up. One, to take ownership of a decision, project, or task, leaders need to assume both the initiative to carry it out and the accountability for every facet of the outcome. Two, an ownership mindset means taking responsibility for outcomes and being empowered to make the decisions that will lead to those outcomes. Three, ownership is the feeling of owning results. When employees feel ownership for what they are doing, they go beyond just taking responsibility. They bring innovation to the job. In all of the various articles I looked at, there's a spirit of leaders taking ownership in order to inspire the same behavior in others, and in so doing, creating a culture of ownership, which goes beyond mindset, by the way, and is entirely possible if the mindsets and behaviors of ownership are routinely demonstrated and observed in your system. There's a lot at stake with regard to autonomy and ownership within organizations, especially given the current time that we're living in. Distributed or hybrid work, for example, is much more successful if people are able to take autonomous action and make decisions in service of your collective strategy and goals. Also, it's a much more efficient and effective way of working. So if you're facing a challenge around resources and staffing right now, being able to do more with fewer people is pretty important. What's critical, though, to being successful at this isn't just hiring people that demonstrate an ownership mindset, quote-unquote, whatever that means. You have to be clear and explicit about what you're in together, what purpose you're all serving, what principles and values should guide decision-making, and then also be clear and explicit about what you're asking people to be responsible for. 
Basically, you have to have really high-quality conversations and communication for this to work. It may sound counterintuitive, but people will be better at taking independent, self-sufficient action the more connected and aligned you are. There are leadership behaviors that either help or hurt that intention, and that's exactly what Mickey, Robin, and I spent quite a bit of time talking about in this episode. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and leave with a few insights and actions you can consider taking on in your own leadership. Welcome back to another episode of On Connection. And I'm joined today again by our home base team. We've got Mickey and Robin here today. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello yourself. Um, today we're going to talk about sponsoring responsible autonomy. Said another way, there are a number of common challenges that we find leaders having, not just today, especially today, maybe, but always, um, around things like their teams aren't doing what they want them to do. Their teams aren't taking enough independent action in service of their goals. They are not able to delegate and offload responsibilities to the point that they can take care of other higher level things. Um, um, leaders that micromanage and get in the way, uh, all of these things contributing to this challenge of how do we successfully sponsor independent autonomous action for the people in our teams so that they're also contributing to our goals in a reliable and efficient way. And this topic generated some energy when we, we considered it as our topic for today. And why, why is that? Why were you both excited about talking about sponsoring responsible autonomy? Well, I'll say for me, um, I've got sort of two things that are on my mind about it. One is totally selfish and the other is more for everyone at large. Maybe they fit in the same bucket everybody's so damn busy. Like I hear that over and over again about just how busy everyone, like wherever I go in the world, any leader I talk to, all you hear about is overwhelm. And then you also hear about rework, having to redo things, having so many people in meetings, having so many people involved. And I think all of that stems back to this need for being able to entrust others to take action that's aligned to our vision of where we're headed. That, that it's actually at the root of why people feel so busy right now, that there's so much either duplication or rework that's happening because we don't know how to do this well, or we don't, we don't trust ourselves or trust others that we're doing it well. So I think for me, that's why it's on my mind. And like everyone, I want my thinking to be in everyone's head so that when I'm not in the room, the things are happening, whether that's with clients or internally, um, in a way that's consistent with what we're trying to execute. So that's for me why, why it was up. My attraction's harmonic with that. I mean, as you both know, I am the always on interest in accomplishing more with less time, money, and stress. And I think a struggle to entrust people with autonomous action is the evidence that there's a lot of wasted time, money, and stress in a system. And it, it costs a lot. Related, Robin, to what you just said, it makes everything take more time. 
it does create more stress in the system, which will lead to more turnover of people who've got other choices that don't want to live in that kind of stress. And I also think it makes the choices less smart because they're not being made by the people closest to the actual work or issue or customers that are involved in a a particular area of decision-making. So to me, it's seen waste that doesn't need to be. And every time I see that, I, I want to lean in. Like, hey, hey, this doesn't this doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> and I also think, Emeros, and you were alluding to it when you said there may be some things that are topical right around now. Autonomy is also, I think, got more light on it at the moment because there's so much more distributed work where people are not in offices together, way more unsupervised activity. How do you assure that that activity is effective and good for the whole system rather than selfish, isolated, myopic, and anarchic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, a question comes to mind. Um, Mickey, you wrote a blog last year about autonomy ain't anarchy, which we'll include in the show notes here. But I could see some people going, okay, we want autonomy, but we're the experts on people being connected. What's the relationship between autonomy and connection? Because I think both of those things are living in the challenge that you just talked about. Well, Robin, I think this is where you step into what we were talking about recently about what's our unique perspective on autonomy. I'll say what occurs to me right this minute, which may not have been what was on my mind in that moment. If it's not, I'll tell you what you said. (laughs) As a small aside, we were talking about this recently, that uh, the difference between right brain thinking and left brain thinking and that... when you say something in that's really present and creative, you often can't actually recall it exactly because you were so present in that moment to whatever was happening. So that is my excuse for why I may not remember exactly oh. what you... Uh, a lovely justification. I believe I'll write that down and save it. I was going to say, me too. <laughs> <laughs> why I might not remember. Uh, <laughs> I am imagining, though, it fits somewhere inside of our distinction around community contribution and choice, Mickey, is what, what occurs to me in this moment about it, that it really is about being clear about what's the mission that the community or the vision or the task or the, what's the, what is it that we're in together that frees us to make smart choices in service of that thing we're in together. So you actually need both parts. And I think that's often what's missing in other places when they talk about anarchy, right? Is there, is there a shared point of view about what we're trying to create together first before we just lob the thing over the wall and say, hey, go take this and run with it? Um, and so, Mickey, I don't know if that's what was on your mind, but that's what occurred to me in this moment when you asked. Well, it fits with what you said. So I'll. I'll weave that in. I I really like the idea of community as the foundation for contribution. Because that's the, the secret to autonomy, that somebody's being true to the original Greek etymology, won't shock you that I always bring that up, uh, is really 
I think it's law unto oneself. Auto is self, and onos is law. So, okay, that means I'm self-governing. However, in a context of community, it means I'm being entrusted by that community to make choices on my own that are in our best interest. And that's the key to autonomy, that you're entrusting someone to make choices under their own supervision that are in the best interest of the community. So what purpose is at stake starts to reveal which community am I making a promise to that I'm going to be making choices in all of our best interest. So what you talked about before that fits with this, and those of you who are familiar with us know that we work a lot on a rhythm that we talk about as a cycle of value, which is alignment, action, and adjustment. And Robin, you were talking about that people often think that delegation or creating autonomy is about handing off action. And what you said is it's actually creating alignment and then having smart methods for adjustment and the action takes care of itself. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was smart. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to say more about that? I thought it was smart when you said it before. (laughs) Well, I, you know, it just goes really what you just said is that people get really, and even we talk about inside of action, that there's three kinds of conversations. You can be having an engaged conversation that gives people the context that they need to really understand uh, what they're being asked to do or what the task at hand is. There's clarify where people get to really get into the details of that. There's close to make sure, are we all mutually committed to this? And that's all great, right? And all absolutely part of delegation, but it's not where delegation tends to break down, right? Delegation actually breaks down in the being aligned on that, what's being asked for and setting up those rhythms of adjustment. And I, even as I say it right now, I actually think setting up an expectation of those rhythms of adjustment is probably the thing people miss most often because they'll hand off the thinking it took me a while to learn this. It's aligned sufficient to the next action because you're never going to know how well aligned you are until somebody does something. We could say the same words. We could sit, nod our heads. We could have a picture in our head of what that's going to look like. And it's still possible that your picture and my picture are not exactly the same. And the only thing that redeems that is having fast, uh, having uh, appropriate cycles of adjustment. And I think that when we're delegating, that's probably the step we miss the most often about what does a reason, when are we going to check in? What are the markers that are going to say it's time for us to have a conversation in are those markers time-based or uh, circumstance-based? Um, and, and I don't think we, I don't think we pre-think that. And so then if I come in after the fact, it feels like I'm overturning your autonomy or undermining your autonomy or questioning the decisions as opposed to saying at the start, no, like, I know this isn't going to go exactly how I think. And let's plan that in. And then when we have that conversation, it's not about blame that you didn't do what I asked you to do. Nikki, as we were talking about earlier, right? Some CEOs will say, well, I gave it to them and then they didn't do what I wanted them to do. Okay. Well, if we, if you set it up that way, that's how people, it's going to land with people. And then you're going to undermine the possibility of ever being able to have people feel like you trust them going forward. I'd like to just look at what what are what are the benefits of this 
and I'll say my version of that. Y'all fill in what else you think is missing. Because I think having that in mind is the way you really then confront what's the real work. Because the benefits have got to make the real work worth it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of autonomy breaks down because the leader delegating the work doesn't do the work that the delegator needs to do. Hence, people then fail and flounder. Um, so the benefits that make it worth getting into this about how do you assure that kind of alignment and adjustment? One, I hear so many senior executives talk about we need a better ownership mentality. Autonomy is actually an engine for the ownership mentality. It has people learn to be more responsible for the interests of the system. So that's one huge thing. It also accelerates people's development. As our friend Jim Shanley said, if you wait to delegate something to somebody until they've already proven they can do that perfectly, you waited way too long. <laughs> so the actual responsibility can energize people's evolution. Uh, it's quicker to make decisions that actually get implemented. There's a greater sense of being entrusted and being satisfied at work, which means an asset to attracting and retaining people who love that ownership mentality. And as we said earlier, then decisions are made by the people closest to the issue. So those are all the things that occur to me as the benefits that make what we're about to talk about is the daunting responsibility worthwhile. Anything that either of you see about the benefits that can make the daunting responsibility worthwhile? Well, the, the only other thing, and I've borrowed this phrase from some of our clients in the medical community about giving people the opportunity to operate at the top of their license. So the medical community uses that a lot for uh, being able to do the procedures that are at the highest end of what you're licensed to do, right? And in the medical community, that's what you want is you want folks that have the highest licensure to be focused on those things, people that have other licenses to focus on the others. So I think the same is true in organizations is are you actually giving the opportunity for everybody to operate at the sort of top of their license? And without, if you don't delegate and actually have that autonomy, you've got real, we have, we know some folks, right? Really seeing your folks involved in very like detailed decisions that make me scratch my head about like, no wonder they feel like they're so busy and overwhelmed. So I think there's also just that freeing of thought and time and space. We talk often about having time for reflection and the number of leaders who say they don't have time for that is really high. Okay. Are there things that you're involved in that you should have others on your team doing? Mm-hmm. Well, all that. And, um, you know, another thing that I think we hear a lot is we want to increase the trust in our system. We want more trust. Why don't people trust me? Why don't I trust others? Although the, why don't people trust me is more often I think the, the story we get. Um, and I think that trust is an outcome of investing correctly in this and that the cost of not doing it drives mistrust because, and I see there's two opposite ends of the spectrum of what makes this challenging for leaders. On one end, you have people who, who can't let go and get into all that minutia and feel like, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to be done correctly, or it's going to take too much time trying to teach somebody else to do it or, or, 
it won't make sense to these people or such blah, 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 blah. And then you have on the other end, the people who are almost playing like hot potato with responsibilities. It's like, oh, I'm just going to chuck this over to your side (laughs) without a lot of care for in that alignment phase, making sure that it's a strategic decision about who you're entrusting with this responsibility and for what reason, like what is their relationship to the task and the context that they have? What is the unique contribution that they're going to make to that that's going to drive their um, purposeful action that you can count on? But, But if you're operating in the hot potato space or the can't let go space, you're actually generating even more mistrust over time. And so it's not just a not building more trust. It's that you're actually contributing to a system of mistrust. Um, so that's what I would add. You prompt a thought, MROs, which is that part of the evidence of great leadership over time is that things that only I could decide last year, other people are deciding this year. And every year there should be things that other people now have the authority to carry forward because it's the leader's job to strengthen leadership, not just be the person in charge of everything. And that's really what you prompted Emrose, because I think it's an important thing for especially C-level executives, and we work with so many CEOs to confront that it's great for them to look at this year, what are the decisions that can't be made without me? And which of those will others be prepared to manage next year? So that they're consciously working to create autonomy. So, okay, so that's our, trio case for benefit. Uh, I think something brief to say about risks, and then I want to look at, all right, what's the work? How do you actually do this well? I think the risks in this are if you don't do the thorough work to assure there's a foundation of alignment that frees people to be successfully autonomous, (laughs) if you don't do that work, it does what you just said, Emrose. It actually promulgates mistrust. People stop trusting themselves because they get second guessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I told the two of you that story about a very senior technical manager in a very famous company complaining about their boss operating like a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> and when I asked him to explain this, he said, we ever been to the beach and those annoying birds just kind of hover around. And when they feel like they reach in and just grab something and then take off. Well, he's like that. He doesn't really understand our work the way we do. And he'll come around every once in a while and just swoop down and go, Oh, I don't think I would have done it that way. Or, Oh, I've got some real questions about this. And then he drops his questions and takes off. And we just wonder when's he going to swoop by again. So those people were feeling mistrusted, but also dismissive and disrespectful of their leader. Like this person doesn't even know that he doesn't know what we know. Right. Uh, it, it was creating discord that was kind of ugly in that system. Like, you know, it really, like it just inhumanized, like, and sort of d- taking that down a notch even further. I, I had a, um, 
an opportunity to meet up with somebody this week who had left an organization, really senior guy, had left an organization because he worked for a leader like that. And he said it took him almost a year to recover his own self-confidence in his, and this is a really senior executive who said like the CEO he'd worked for had just so undermined his own confidence, his own trust in himself from that behavior that it took him about a year to recover that he actually knew what the hell he was doing in the job that he was like in his new role. Like, and I think about, I, I like, that's something that's going to bother me for a while. Cause this is somebody who this wasn't a junior folk person. This was somebody who was really seasoned to begin with. And so the amount of harm that like we as leaders can actually do from not paying it out of what might've been good intention, like we've got to get in there and monkey with it. I think to the, to the humans that are involved, I think it's worth reflecting on. Well, and just to add on to that, I mean, talk about driving a cycle of waste, I, like if a leader is behaving in that way and causing that reaction of people not trusting themselves to make decisions, people questioning, living in fear of when they're going to be judged or assessed, um, not feeling set up to make successful decisions or, or take successful action because they don't even know what that would be. And, and then getting reprimanded for that or looked down to, looked down on, talked down to, and then the leader is going, why aren't you making any decisions? Like, why aren't you doing anything yourself? Why do I always have to come in here and do everything for you? It's because they've created that environment where there's this dependence on the that singular leader's perspective in order for something to be considered right. And um, so, I mean, the leader's creating the environment that they don't want to have by behaving in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who I really admired and cared about, I'm sorry he died so young, was Al Mitch. And if you remember, Al was the CEO at Audio Precision. And before that, he was a senior executive at HP. And um, he's just somebody that I I admired a lot because his life was an always-on learning journey. It didn't matter how big the jobs got. he, He was learning. And he told me something once that I thought that is really provocative that he said he learned from one of the people that he admired most in his career, which is when you're handing something off to someone else, the way, you know, you're ready is you are promising they will be successful. Mm. Mm. And he said, and I've always looked, am I ready to promise she will succeed at this? And he said, and if I'm not, I haven't done the work to set them up. And I love that. And a lot of senior executives will go, I can't promise that. Well, a promise is not the same as a guarantee or a prediction. A promise is I have given all I can to this. You know, I am fully invested in her or his success. And Al said that that was one of the most important lessons he ever had and one that he kept having to relearn. (laughs) over and over again, can I promise this person success? And and I think that is really the context for the work. What's the work of autonomy? You said earlier, I think successful autonomy, Rose. And I think it starts with that. Have you done what you would need to do to promise that person success? And I think 
core to this is you're handing off judgment, not just activity. So I'm wondering what either one of y'all have to say about that. How do we hand off to people a way of thinking through the challenge, not just giving them an activity? Because I see all the time somebody goes, well, I tried empowerment and I gave them this and then they failed. Okay. They did not hand off the judgment necessary. So what do you have to say about that? Because I think it's one of the core issues of being able to promise someone success is you've handed off smart thinking. Um, well, I think that's actually a longer story than just the moment of delegation, probably, because that's sourced originally and how were they onboarded? How have they been, you know, exposed to things over time to give them a sense of the way that decisions are made around here? Um, do they know what it is we care about at a foundational level? So are your values and principles upon which you make strategic decisions really explicit and clear and have they seen them in action? Um, so there's a lot of context that I don't think it has to take years and years and years, but just have you made sure that that person is available to understanding more of the big picture of what contributes to the reason behind your decision-making? Have you been explicit in how you arrived at certain decisions before you started offloading responsibility to them? So you know, they witness you making some sort of decision, have the conversation with them. Do you understand why I chose that? Do you understand like what my thinking was there? And it's not so that then they can become a clone of your thinking, but they get whatever the consistent, um, the consistent compasses that you're rotating off of. And then you're inviting in their unique perspective too. And I think that's where the unique personal contribution comes in, which does is an important element of autonomy. They have to see themselves in it. It can't just be being an actor on behalf of this other person in all the ways that they would want me to act. It's, do I see myself in this in some way? Am I giving of myself to this? Um, so that's what comes up for me first, but Robin, what, what about you? I think just building on that, there's a couple of things that occur to me. We often, and we probably have done it here, make the distinction between purpose versus method, versus outcome, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time I find people are handing off delegation. It's in the domain of method, right? In selecting a method and acting a method most of the time. So can I get in, as I'm thinking about delegation, can we be really clear together about what's the purpose of, what's the problem we're solving? What's the opportunity we're, like, what is it that we're actually after? What is a successful outcome start to look like? And maybe that one's not fully baked, but I've got a picture in my head of things that would be criteria for success. And then that would be the others. The sort of guardrails around that are what are sort of principles that are important to be included in the decision or in the action. And so that might be, um, I tell the story often that when I was working in manufacturing for a while, we were doing an expansion and I knew that there were three criteria that everything went through time, timeline, budget, safety. So everything was bounced against those three things that the, and not in that order, right? But that those were the three things that were constantly being balanced between that we were all paying attention to was, are we meeting the time? We had a timeline we had to hit. We had a budget we were trying to stay inside and we needed everybody to be safe. And so like that, that was really clear. So those were the design cr criteria for any decision, any action that was being taken. 
And everybody knew it because it was reinforced all the time. The other thing that just comes to mind, and I don't think I do this overly well, but um, but Emrose, I think should be included in there. Mm-hmm. It's about what has me handed off to this person? Like what's their, like what's the contribution that I think they make that has that be smart? I think that, I think that, well, I don't know that we talk about that all the time. I do it some, I think we do it some of the time, but I think that I, I almost wonder about having that be, like a standard part of how we think about delegation is why, (laughs) what is it that this person sees or does is responsible for contributes on a regular basis that actually says this is the unique reason for them. And it doesn't have to do with like, cause you're the one who has the time, (laughs) although maybe like sometimes that is it. Right. Well, you know, something else that comes up, it's related to something we talked about when we were preparing for this. So you know, making sure that this person also feels like I'm thinking about the balance of being available and having oversight to a degree while this person is growing into this space and micromanagement. And I think there is kind of a fine line there, but I think what can help with that a lot is something about routine and process and promises that are made up front. So this is not made in reaction to your performance to date. It's we're going to meet on this cadence and this, these are going to be the things that we talk about. This is going to be your access to me. You can come and ask me questions. These are the things I don't think you need to have my opinion on. These are the things I, that I would welcome a conversation about being a lot more explicit about that upfront rather than being reactive in, Oh, that didn't go so well. Let's chat. You know, it, it creates, um, I think it, for one, it means those moments don't get missed in the busyness. So you do still have this rhythm of connection. Um, and it's not something that this person is perceiving as a reflection of that they're not doing well. Um, but I, it's related to our align, act, adjust cycle. That's the adjust part. But I'm curious, what do you guys think is the distinction between an adjustment like adjust conversations and micromanaging? Like what are the differences? I think that it goes back to, am I promising that person success? Which means there's a foundation of alignment in which we are coming together for her or him to be successful. That spirit in the beginning, makes sure that adjustment is not mistrusting micromanagement. So there are several other things in here that what you've both been talking about. One, there has to be a purpose clear up front to be able to answer the question, why you? Well, given this purpose and what's at stake in that purpose and how this matters to us strategically, and that you have these gifts and this experience and you know these talents, I'm asking you to step into this and I'm going to work with you. So you have what you need to succeed. So if you get the purpose clear, it then starts to be able to inform, well, who and why for that person. Also, Emrose, relative to what you just said, I think part of how you arrive at the rhythm of adjustment is knowing what are your measures of success and whether we're on or off track. 
so for every project, I think you can look at what's at risk in it and what are our measures along the way for if we're on or off track. And that starts to inform how often do we check in. So how often we check in is not because I don't trust you, but it's because of the nature of this project and how we measure its success and our evidence that we're on or off track. So it's the design of success governing the cadence, not the level of my faith in you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also there's something about, and there's no recipe for success with this at this point, it's a trial and error thing, but um, making people feel like it's okay to not know what you don't know yet. Because I think sometimes that's one of the big fears when people get delegated responsibility is that they think there's an assumption that I should know X, Y, Z already. And I don't want to admit that I don't because then they won't trust me or maybe this opportunity will be taken away from me or maybe people in the system will think poorly of me. And so there's a lot of, I think, pretense behind the scenes of let me figure out how to do this without actually admitting. Um, And I think there's probably a lot of mistakes that get made just in that space because somebody is not willing to just go, hey, can I ask the dumb question? Like it might be a dumb question, but I'm not really sure if it's a dumb question. Um, So leaving room for that too, for the person being delegated to, to then go, ask questions and of whom, like, who are, who are the people that are going to support you in this? And it might not just be the leader. So I think being part of the connected leadership thing is you don't always have to come directly to me. This person can also help you answer these kinds of questions. And this person could help you give you this kind of context. And I think a way you could get into that with some specificity MROs is Mm -hmm. a question we've talked about in different contexts before. And I still love it here, which is, if you have the the leader who is out to entrust somebody else with this new responsibility and that person being delegated to, they have a conversation first separately and then come together. And the conversation is, all right, if it's a year from now and this autonomy attempt has been hugely unsuccessful, it's been a failure and we're both upset, what will explain that going wrong? <laughs> and have them each have to think that and then come and share that with each other. Then it starts, okay, how do we take care of all that stuff so that we are successful? And that's where things like, well, you're gonna need this kind of access to me certainly, and I want you to have these emergency protocols I promise to respond within a single day if you ever say this. And there's these other people who could handle these problems, not me. If people think from the future and think from, I failed, what went wrong? it tends to reveal things that then become an occasion for conversation today. And we end up being proactive rather than reactive to those. I also think it's important for balance to answer the question, and if it's a year from now and we're brilliantly successful, what explains that success? If you get both those answered by both people, first separately, then they discuss it with each other. The plan you make, will have enough strength and safety in it for this person to be successful. Mm-hmm. There's two things that are coming up for me right now. One, somebody could be listening to this and going, yeah, that's all great. I don't have time for that. 
then you're never going to, right? Is often what I say, right? So like, yeah, yes, it isn't there. It, initially, it is an investment. And I use this analogy all the time. I probably used it here before, right? The, the most frustrating moment of my parenting was trying to teach my kids to tie their shoes because it was, <laughs> it was, it was I'm one sorry. of the most, That's just funny that that's the most, one of the most frustrating, like, oh my God, cause you just do it. You just do it and you don't think about it. And so having to actually stop for a minute and think about like, wait, how, how, like it's uh, actually made me have to question, wait, how do I tie my shoe? I don't actually know how to tie a shoe. I know how to tie it. I don't, I can't repeat it. And I think that's what we're actually asking leaders to do when we're talking about handing that level of thinking off, because it just happens so fast that you can't, like you've got to, it feels like you have to slow down because you actually do have to slow down and think about make a loop, take your other hand, run the rabbit around the outside of the tree, rabbit drive, right? Like you have to think through all of those things that I, I couldn't even repeat the rabbit thing because I didn't learn how to tie my shoe that way, right? And so it was like, how do you, how do I sort of impart this? And I think it can feel really frustrating to the leader. And that's what I've noticed more often than not is that leaders get frustrated it occurs like frustration with the other person. A lot of the time, it's actually frustration with themselves that they cannot convey what they're trying to convey in a way that the other person gets it like that. I think often it's actually uh, them not appreciating their own talents and gifts that they have and being able to see like, that's really easy for you because that's sort of your natural talent and gift that you're trying to sort of deconstruct so somebody else can pick it back up. Um, but if I don't spend the time to do that now, this thing, I think Mickey, you said it earlier, that thinking, that decision is never getting handed off. Then I'm going to be stuck with that in perpetuity. And if I'm okay with that, fine. But like, if I want other people to own things, I have to make the investment in actually understanding my own thinking enough. Yeah, uh, And that putting it in the context of investment, I think is really smart because then you can talk about return on the investment. When you were talking, Robin, you reminded me of, God, this had to be 10 years ago, in a three-day offsite with a CFO of a global company and all of his direct reports, where they were taking a system that actually had been fragmented. So the financial analysis and reporting was done in 30 places around the world using 30 different kinds of softwares. And, and so the main project they were working on is coming up with an integrated financial management system globally for this huge company. And in there, the project itself was being bogged down. And when people started naming what the things were, uh, let me see, what will I call this person? Harry, we'll call this person Harry. <laughs> <laughs> is that people kept talking about how many things had to go to Harry and that you had to get in line for Harry to be involved and resolve this. And, and so this issue of delegation and trustment autonomy came up because the whole project was way behind the timeline. And he kept saying, I don't have time when they would give him, well, if you just spent this time with me and explain this and no, 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 I don't have time. And one of his direct reports, this woman, I love this moment. I thought it was really bold. She said, Harry, using his actual real name, but she said, she said, Harry, my question to you is, 
how many things over this past year did you have to get involved with? You didn't want to, you didn't expect to, but you had to. And how much time did that take from your year? And this led to this incredible conversation where the people in the room helped him think of all the things he was frustrated. I shouldn't have to do this. And he had to jump into this and he had to bypass that. And he had to, and she said, they came up with this ridiculous number of hours in his year that were associated with that. She said, we could spend half those hours on you working with us to know what you know, and you'd have all the rest of that time back. And I thought that was terrific. And it made a huge difference. It actually changed the whole next day and a half and what we were doing. So when people say, I don't have time, it's important to go after what is all your time being used for? And what in that could be used better if you actually took the time to entrust others? So I, I do think that this is a, it is an investment. So I like Robin that you brought it around to that. And part of the job of the senior leader is investment. It's not just reacting to today's problems. It's keeping us constantly preparing for a greater ROI in the future. That's why people buy stock is they think that thing's going to be worth more later. Well, people come to work thinking working for you, my career is going to be worth more later. You know, they want to learn, they want to grow. And this area of autonomy is a chance for everyone to keep learning and to keep driving responsibility to places that energize people and lead to better outcomes. So I just think it's worth stopping, taking a breath and seeing, have I done the work, the alignment work where I can say, I promise you will be successful. And if so, you're actually embracing the challenge of authentic autonomy. And Mama Rose, I think we're going to run out of time, but I think another conversation for us as a part two to this might be about point easy and how to actually catch and recover and notice and who's accountable for when things start to go slightly off track and how do we have those conversations? Because I think the other thing that gets in the way around all of this is the blame game, right? Whose fault is it that something didn't go? Um, and how do we, the, the more people feel blamed, the less likely they are that they're going to want to take on any of this if they feel like there's something at risk. So I'd love to do a part two, maybe that takes us in that direction. Um, Cause I think that's the other part of accountability uh, and autonomy is how do we also be responsible for learning and adjusting and whatever else might need to happen on the tail end. Yeah. Be well, to do a whole episode on blame, shame, and organizational distress. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually where my head was going to was that the flip side, like you said that in such a nice way about um, promising this person's success. It also means taking responsibility for their failure. I think, I mean, from the, if you're the senior leader that's delegating and you're responsible for this person either performing well or not, and you're owning that responsibility, you also have to own wherever it went off. And I think the better way to say that's a, a that's the, um, 
what's the word? Intriguing way to say it, I guess. Um, but the way you're putting it, Robin, about you're responsible for the learning and adjustment. So you're responsible for, you know, you're, you're take, you're promising this person success. And then if it doesn't go correctly, then you are responsible for making sure that the learning and adjustment is happening. Um, that actually reminds me of something that Robin has said, which is the newer, the handoff, the more frequent the Mm check-in. Cause if you are promising their success and being responsible for their failure, you know, there's, there's things inside of our practice. There's people that I can hand things to and just be relaxed because we've been down the road together. What you were talking about earlier, MROs about, do we have shared values? Do we have a shared understanding of our strategic imperatives? Do we entrust each other with being true to those things as a basis of our decision-making? So there's some people, it is stress-free. And then we have other people that are just newer in the system and it would be a disservice to them to have the same cadence of check-in. So that's why I like Robin's rule, the newer the handoff, the more frequent the Mm check-in. Well, we always finish with something that we learned or we're being haunted by or (laughs) leaving with an insight that we're going to go run with for a while. So what... What are you both stuck on as a result of this conversation? For me, I definitely think it's the uh, being really rigorous about why this person. So like, what's the contribution that you hope for them to make um, and being um, rigorous and explicit. I think I often assume they get why I've given it to them and I don't, I think that's probably unfair to both me and them. So for, for myself personally, that's what I would take out of this. For me, it's, you know, I got reminded, Emrose, by what you were saying about Al and him saying that years ago. It's a wake-up call to me to really own, I'm promising this person success. So we were talking earlier about something that I may not be the right person to do and who could take that over. And I am thinking in terms of that real project me standing in Al's confront, I promise your success. I, I feel like I've recovered something that I lost conscious touch with, which is the rigor and responsibility of giving something away to somebody else. Mm. Well, in the, I mean, this isn't my thing. So I'm just, just a little tangent here. Um, the relief of it too. Like, I mean, I have a coaching client right now who her she was on that can't let go side of things and really, really, really struggling with that fast forward five months. And she's been delegating a lot more and seeing these people feel she, she used the word like empowered. They're more connected to more of the context because they're the ones taking the meetings because I'm not the one just saying yes to all the meetings. And Um, they're able to make decisions that I was always the one that had to get called to, you know, find out my perspective on it. And it's releasing her of so much weight of responsibility and stress and strain that she's actually finding more purpose in her role now. 
Mm-hmm. Where five months ago she was like, I don't know. It, it's too much. It's too heavy. I, I can't find my way forward. And she was just stuck at that ceiling. And now that she's started doing it and she, you know, she admitted, she said, it takes time. I had to keep practicing this over and over again and giving it a shot and seeing how it turned out. It's not a quick fix overnight. Um, and I think that's just such a developmental frontier for so many growing leaders. But one of the things I said to her was you investing in your development and growth is leading to the development and growth of other people. So not only are you getting freed up, you're also now contributing to the growth of other people, which is, you know, Robin, our whole love as a leadership skill thing. But I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It just, it's hard in the immediate moment. And I understand why I really, really do. Um, but my thing that I'm leaving with, um, I just love this whole seagulling thing. I'm, I've never, I haven't heard that from you before, but that's one hilarious, um, and such a good image. And I see it so often that I'm actually leaving wondering, you know, getting, being more curious about why, like, what are the motivators behind those leaders that get stuck in this habit of seagulling? And I'm actually more curious about what's, what's driving them to do that now than what the impact is. Cause obviously we know that it, what the impacts are not so great, but but why, why is that the way that you feel like you have to behave and how could you relieve that? So that's what I'm leaving thinking about. Good. Emrose, is there anything since when you launched this whole series, a lot of it had to do with wanting multiple generations perspectives. Uh So in this notion of people being free to go be great, to be trusted and to be contributing to a larger system reliably, is there anything you see about this that's got generational distinctions in it? Well, I think nowadays it's you have to give people the opportunity to be autonomous, both because of the circumstances of our world. I mean, I saw an article this morning on LinkedIn or something about how recruiters are having to deal manage Gen Z's expectations about they're like, I want remote work. I want to start at 90K. I want to do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I want unlimited time off. Um, and I, but I think that those are all man, you know, just things that represent a core value of just wanting to be an individual that's trusted to contribute in a meaningful way. And so Gen Z people may or may not be able to identify that that's the motivator underneath it. But I do think that that is a, a thing that leaders are going to have problems attracting talent if it's not something you're working on. And this whole thing about toxic cultures, um, and that being a driver of people leaving companies. Um, I think a huge part of that is people not feeling entrusted to make a meaningful difference. And so that's from the younger perspective. Um, I think, you know, more of the traditional kind of top down delegation techniques, might have more nuance to them now, both because of more of the individual being, uh, you know, their individual drivers and motivators being part of work. And then also the dispersed environment that we're in, but that's just my take. Of course we could keep talking about that. I don't know if Robin, you have any like short thoughts about that before we close. Well, just, I do think generationally, 
um, as a Gen X, I like that was not really part of the conversation. Like kind of do your damn job and do right. what you're talking, right? Like, and so I do find I have to, I, I sometimes have to like take, like say like, okay, that thinking is actually not helpful, right? Like that, right? But that that's what I sort of, can, and then I also, I worked in manufacturing right out of college. So if you think of it, like if there's a lot of like, you were doing this thing, you were doing this job, you were doing it at this time, right? Um, to make sure that the manufacturing all the productions were operating. So I think those two things in in combination, I sometimes have, like, there wasn't a lot of autonomy. And yeah, because you sort of needed their, everything to run on a schedule. So um, I think that sometimes interferes in my thinking and I have to sort of un, like unlearn that. I think from a my baby boomer perspective, a, a habit that I think, was inarticulate it's not as though i remember people talking about it is that you expect that other people are just going to learn by watching you be the boss hmm. instead of a responsibility for handing off thinking and judgment and helping people on their own learning journey the way you were talking emrose about how deeply satisfying that is for that leader that you're coaching as you were saying that, I realized that I just expected, well, look, I spent 30 years getting to be competent in this, just watch. <laughs> but that has us develop leaders at the same rate at which an apprentice becomes a blacksmith. And I don't think that's very efficient. So I think that mentality of expecting people to ask the right questions, to be interested in what I do and why I do it, and to be aggressively apprenticing my brilliance that that's thoughtless and ineffective mm. and all too often for me and others of my age bracket. Well, and it means that if you want somebody to soak up everything about you, like a sponge, they're soaking up all the stuff that you're not even aware you're putting out there too. So <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. I say not for, not for present company, but for some others, like you, know, they might also be soaking up some habits. We'd like to be left behind. So right. Not excluded from that, obviously. So let's just say being explicit and intentional <laughs> is probably in your favor about what you want to pass on. You have the opportunity to choose. Well, Thank you um, to both of you. And we will be joined with you again very soon, I'm sure. But until then, ta-ta. Bye, everybody. Bye, all. This episode was produced by Guy Connolly. Original artwork is by Dana Buckingham. And music is by a cast of characters. Special thanks to Conversant's extended community who inspire the continued evolution of our work and stand with us in our commitment to change leadership, business, and the world through conversation. You can learn more about Conversant at www.conversant.com. On Connection is created and produced by the members of Conversant, awakening the world to the power and joy of authentic human connection. We set a new standard for leadership that produces meaningful, enduring impact. Until next time.